Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Six Feet 60 Seconds podcast. I'm your host, Coley Harvey, and this, after a bit of a layoff, is our second episode. For the next 15 minutes, I'm pleased and honored to share with you the story of a diligent, creative, hardworking pioneer who helped pave the path that I'm currently attempting to follow myself. That person is Sherman Leander Maxwell, or better known by his nickname, Jocko Maxwell. Coming in the middle of another hard week for those of us who call ourselves sports journalists, this episode is an attempt to connect our past with the present. As we bury two of our own in the coming days, Pedro Gomez and Therese Paler, two men of color whose presence was absolutely critical to telling stories about the respective sports they covered, this seems like no better moment to discuss the impact of another man who very few sports fans these days even knew existed. I must admit, I needed to better familiarize myself with Mr. Maxwell, and I'm glad that I began this journey of doing so several months ago. So with that, I present to you the Six Feet 60 Seconds Podcast, Episode 2, Remembering Jocko Maxwell. William and Bessie Maxwell welcomed into the world their son Sherman on December 18, 1907, He was born in the city where he would spend the vast majority of what would be a life that spanned 100 years. That city was Newark, New Jersey, a bustling mini-metropolis in northern New Jersey, a dozen or so miles from the even brighter lights of lower Manhattan. The Maxwells named their son Sherman after the famed Civil War general, William Tecumseh Sherman. A leading authority for the winning Union Army, General Sherman is best known in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, for having burned a path across the 13th colony that began in the state's current capital city and ended a couple hundred miles later when he finally hit the ocean in Savannah. Sherman's destruction of the Peach State proved key in the Americans' forthcoming victory. In the earliest years of Sherman Maxwell's life, it became evident that his destiny rested in being a newsman of some kind. After all, in those days, his father William worked for the Newark Star-Ledger, a white-owned and operated newspaper and predecessor of the current-day paper of the same name. William Maxwell was the features editor of the paper in those days, a position that very, very, very few blacks across the country could say that they had at a non-black newspaper. Likely thanks to his father's position, Sherman grew up an avid reader, a trait he continued well into his working career. You see, Sherman became a newspaper reporter and sports broadcaster. In fact, he has been credited as having been the very first black sports broadcaster in American history. As his prestige and influence grew, he remained an avid reader, taking in up to 10 sports pages a day so that he could stay abreast of all the news he could from the tri-state area and beyond. We'll get to his broadcasting career shortly, but right after this quick break, we'll tell you about how he became known as Jocko. You're listening to the Six Feet 60 Seconds Podcast. This is Episode 2, Remembering Jocko Maxwell. When he was a young boy growing up in the 1920s, Sherman Maxwell fell in love with the sport of baseball. He played it regularly and listened to as much of it as he could on the radio. You see, at the time, radios were sweeping the nation as the first form of non-written major mass communication. They began popping up in homes across America, and baseball, a sport which had livened up its ball and was seeing sharp spikes in interest, well, it was in prime position to take advantage of a newly captivated radio audience. One day when he wasn't listening to a game on a radio, a very young Sherman Maxwell was attempting to watch one up close, albeit from outside the main gate. The legend goes that a foul ball was hit near a tree, and as he went to jump and climb the tree to retrieve it, an onlooker made the comment, Look at Jocko! 
It was a reference to Jocko the monkey, an actual monkey that had appeared in moving pictures and was a household name as an entertainer throughout the 1920s. Naturally, our sensitivities of today have us question what the onlooker was really trying to say about the brown-skinned boy reaching in the tree for the ball, but regardless of the intent, the nickname stuck and Maxwell apparently didn't think negatively of it. From then on, he was known as Jocko. While a senior at Newark Central High School in 1928, a 19-year-old Maxwell started managing and playing for the Newark Starlings, a mixed-race semi-pro baseball team. Unlike the segregated Newark Bears of the International League, the Starlings were unaffiliated and were made up of men from various nationalities. It should be noted that at that time, the all-black Newark Eagles had not yet formed. They wouldn't come together until 1933 and then join the National Negro League in 1936. Don't worry, we'll get to them because Jocko had an impact on them as well. As the Starlings manager, it was not only young Jocko's job to make sure the team executed the way it needed to and that its in-game strategy was sound, but he also promoted the club and sought competition for it. He did all of that while playing in the infield and outfield as well for the club. According to research and reporting from Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, Maxwell was such a better player than he gave himself credit for. He always said that he didn't think he was good enough to be a professional, but colleagues at the time credited him with a 320 batting average across his 12-year semi-pro career, and others regularly praised his athleticism as a defensive player. All of that is to say, he probably really could play. Throughout those years that he was guiding the team, he also began guiding a groundbreaking freelance-based broadcast career. More on that after this quick break. You're listening to the 6 Feet 60 Seconds Podcast. This is Episode 2, Remembering Jocko Maxwell. Beginning in 1929, one year after he graduated high school, Maxwell became a broadcaster. Unable to attend college at a physical education school in nearby East Orange, New Jersey because it did not accept black applicants, he sought out employment at Newark-based radio station WNJ. Created just six years prior, WNJ was one of the first radio stations in northern New Jersey. Its founder was Herman Lubensky, a former naval radio operator who started broadcasting from his radio shop on Market Street in Newark. Nearly 20 years after he launched WNJ, Lubinsky also founded Savoy Records, a label that specialized in jazz. During his start at WNJ, Maxwell worked out an arrangement with Lubinsky in which he would read sports scores across the airwaves for five minutes every Saturday. For those of us like me who began in newspapers, this was the equivalent of joining as an agate clerk, designing the many box scores that filled what's known as the newspaper's agate page. I was never an official agate clerk myself, but I've inserted my share of local and national box scores into a newspaper spread. I can tell you it's a grueling and tedious task. This is all to say that Jocko Maxwell's first broadcasting job was nothing more than a foot in the door and an opportunity. An opportunity he'd very quickly run far with. After his start in 1929, Maxwell soon worked for other radio stations across Metro New York, including WHOM, based in Jersey City. At WHOM, he had his own show, Sports Highlights. It was a regular spot throughout the week in which he gave listeners insight into the sports happenings with local high school, semi-pro, and professional teams. That led to opportunities with WRNY, another Jersey-based station, but one which also had a studio in Manhattan. 
On his Runs, Hits, and Errors show, Maxwell began hosting interviews with local sports heroes, many of whom were Negro Leaguers. It was around this same time that the Eagles had taken root in Newark, and they were in need of someone to tell their story. While Maxwell was growing his broadcast career at these various stations, he also served as the public address announcer for the Eagles at their home park and wrote occasional game stories as a freelancer for the Newark Ledger, Sporting News, Baseball Digest, and a host of black newspapers across America. It was thanks to many of Maxwell's articles and his meticulous note-taking and scorekeeping that we are able to know today much of what we do about the Negro Leagues. Without his interviews and records, the story of Negro Leagues baseball would be grossly incomplete. This renaissance man didn't stop there either. By 1938, he had earned a spot at WWRL, where his regular five-star sports final program blew up. It made him a household name across New York and had many black writers wondering in public, and some whites in private, why the color of his skin had to keep him from higher-profile opportunities. He was the definition of diligence and hard work. He knew his subject matter, and most importantly, he was getting superstars as interview guests. Some of the best big leaguers of the day, Hank Greenberg and Dixie Walker, were among the names he landed for interviews at WWRL. By 1942, his efforts were partially rewarded by the radio station, which promoted him to sports director. A year later, however, he'd be forced to temporarily leave the station. From 1943 to 1945, he served in World War II, working in Europe and the Philippines with the Army Special Services Unit, a unit designed to help entertain the troops. Upon his return from the war, Maxwell, who had married just before his deployment, went right back to work as a broadcaster. It was a job he retained until he retired in 1967. One thing that must be made perfectly clear about this giant of a man who tried hard to live out his dream career is this. He sacrificed a lot, and he sacrificed in more ways than just one. He certainly sacrificed his time, juggling many different opportunities. While playing semi-pro ball, writing freelance articles, being a public address announcer, jumping from radio station to radio station, writing books, and going to war, he also served as a postal clerk. That was the way he made his money. Speaking of money, in most cases, when he worked with radio stations as a freelancer, he wasn't getting paid. They didn't give him a single cent. And while Maxwell often said that didn't bother him and remarked that he was proud to do something he loved, he did once publicly admit to how challenging carving his career path had been. In one 1954 letter to the editor in a black newspaper, he wrote, It has been a tough road. I've gotten the runaround innumerable times simply because of my race. He admitted, among other atrocities, being barred from eating at a team's hotel if he was covering it on the road. It is because of Jocko Maxwell that Art Rush Jr., a pioneer in the sports talk radio space, could exist. It is because of Jocko Maxwell that 50 years ago today, on February 10, 1971, a black man, Bill White, could become a full-time member of the play-by-play -play team for a major league club. It is because of Jocko Maxwell that the press box could be viewed as a place where blacks could also exist. It is because of Jocko Maxwell that the similar pioneering efforts of the Sam Lacey's and Larry Whitesides of black sports journalism were not in vain. It is because of Jocko Maxwell that the Michael Wilbons and Terrence Moores and Claire Smiths and Ralph Wiley's and Stephen A. Smith's and Maria Taylor's could exist. It is because of Jocko Maxwell that I'm able to do what it is that I love to do, and for that, I'm forever indebted.
You know, seven years prior to his passing at age 100, Maxwell had the highlight of his life. That year, Maxwell saw for the first time the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. He has not yet been given an honorary posthumous home in that building, but for what he did to preserve the legacy of Negro League Baseball alone, he ought to be duly thanked by the powers that be at the Hall. Of that visit he made, Maxwell told the Newark Star-Ledger, quote, I have to say, I never had a nicer day in my whole life, and I'm 93, so that's, that's saying something. You know, for a man who so few current day sports fans likely know about, there's a lot of information out there on Sherman Jocko Maxwell. For an even more detailed accounting of his life, Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, well, they have a nice read on him on their website. That's a great place to start. There are also a few stories in the archives of the Chicago Defender and Atlanta Daily World, two black publications which noted his advancement in the broadcast industry in the 1940s and which pleaded for higher profile opportunities for him. The African American Registry has also written about Maxwell, as has the Newark Star-Ledger, both during his career and in more recent years, notably in 2008 when he passed away. This has been a 6 Feet 60 Seconds podcast with host Coley Harvey. You've been listening to episode 2, Remembering Jocko Maxwell. If you like this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're listening to it. Also, be sure to visit coleyharvey.com for more.